Okay, that's the big news. There you go. I got 81 days left uh, in this role, uh, actually. So, and as uh, Matt said, uh, my wife and I are going to be gone from Blackhawk for six months. I bought a canoe, and I, I intend to use that canoe. But if uh, I can serve Matt and his team best uh, by coming back uh, to this platform and helping develop more preachers, that's exactly uh, what I want to do. I'm looking forward uh, to the future in uh, a big way. Hey, let me say hi to everybody that is uh, online uh, right now, and especially those of you who are part of our Blackhawk Chinese ministry, Di Zhongzi Mei Ping An. And everybody in the room here, it's so good uh, to be with all of you. Hey, and especially, yeah, go ahead and let's clap. That's okay. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. And then a special shout out. Uh, to those volunteers who are right now at Blackhawk Fitchburg and Blackhawk downtown. So uh, we absolutely count on volunteers to make Sundays work around here. So thank you uh, for being at those sites because next week, uh, all, can you believe this? All three sites are going to be open next week. So as we continue our phase relaunched, uh, into this, uh, out of this crazy pandemic world that we live in. So we're looking forward to that. Well, hey, I better uh, start the talk or I'm going to be running out of time. I'm probably going to run out of time anyway. Who cares? No, I care. So, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to the talk uh, today. Hey, you don't have to be around Blackhawk very long to hear us use uh, this phrase. And it goes uh, something like this. The Bible was not written to us, but the Bible was written for us. Uh, Shake your heads up and down if you've heard us say that phrase before. I stole that phrase from a friend of mine uh, who teaches uh, Wheaton Graduate School named John uh, Walton. And we've used it so many times, we don't even credit John. Thanks, John. (laughs) We don't even credit him uh, anymore with that phrase. Sometimes when people look at that, uh, they, they kind of push back. No, I think the Bible's actually written. I think the Bible's written to me, Pastor Chris. So it's easy to prove that the Bible's not actually written to you when you just uh, ask somebody to read something like this. So there you go. Read that out loud. There you go. So that's not English, obviously. That's not Mandarin uh, either. Uh, and it's not Spanish. It's uh, Hebrew. The Bible was written to people. Most of the Bible is written in Hebrew, you guys. And then uh, the next language would be Greek, and then the third language would be uh, Aramaic. The Bible was written to people who can understand what this means. Now, I speak English. I had to go to school to learn how to read Hebrew, because the Bible was not written to me. It's written for me. Not to me. So at Blackhawk, we're always talking about that, that phrase. We're always trying to help people uh, go. you got to get into the original world. So biblical interpreters have to have their feet firmly placed in both worlds, both the ancient world and the modern world. And the reason we have so many bad interpretations is that usually people just have their feet placed in one world and not both worlds. You have to understand something about the ancient world, and then how does that make sense in the modern world today? So we keep using this phrase coined by John Walton. The Bible was not written to us, but the Bible was written for us. But (laughs) 
there's actually a place in the Bible where this is not actually true, to tell you the truth. There is an exception. Not many exceptions. But there's one place in the Bible where when the speaker was speaking, the speaker was actually speaking to us. Actually speaking to us. It was written for us, but the speaker had us in mind. Not very many places in the Bible like that. But there's at least one, and that's what we're going to look at today. Take your Bibles. Turn them on. Open them up. Do whatever. And turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to uh, continue in our series, or this might be the first part of our series. We're kind of, kind of latching on to what Matt did last week. And the series is called uh, Greater. And it's like a four-part series. It's based on the resurrection and conversations that Jesus had after the resurrection. So last week, Pastor Matt uh, talked about uh, the resurrection. We call that greater hope. Today, I'm going to continue in John chapter 20 and talk about, this is a really wonderful scene, and talk about greater trust or greater faith. Next week, Lynn Beanick is going to continue in the Gospel of John and walk through a wonderful narrative in John 21. And then the following week after that, Pastor Matt will be back and he'll look at that very strange passage in Luke about the road to Emmaus. So we're looking at different conversations that Jesus had after the resurrection. Today, we continue in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 19. Here we go. And I'm so excited right now, I gotta just calm down for a minute. This is, I just love this passage. Here we go. On the evening of that first day of the week, that's continuing from the narrative in John 20, that first day when the original women and men came to the tomb, found an empty tomb. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. That's an understatement. Like, what? Like, whoa. Can you imagine the joy in that room? All these disciples are feeling a great deal of joy. But all the disciples weren't there. One of them was missing. That's what makes this story cool. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, right. No, no, no. (laughs) He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why did Thomas say that? Because, like us, everybody that he knows that has died has stayed dead. 100% of them. People just don't rise from the dead. And Thomas saw Jesus died on the cross. That's why he said that. The narrative continues, verse 26. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. That's a very clear command that he's given to Thomas right then. And Thomas's response is, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is one of the clearest uh, verses in the New Testament about the deity of Christ. Thomas now, he sees and he's overwhelmed with the evidence. He's overwhelmed. And because he sees, he believes, my Lord, my God, oh my gosh. And then there's this interesting little verse that's like unique in the Bible. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now who's that, you guys? That would be us. When Jesus spoke those words, he's thinking not just about, hey, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Good for you. But blessed are those people who have never seen me, and yet they have believed. That would be us. The speaker, Jesus, is actually thinking about other people and not just who he's talking to. How you guys doing? You follow that? And then John's narrative continues. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Many uh, books in the New Testament are uh, difficult to get through. We're always trying to figure out why the author wrote that particular book. John's not one of those books. Because John the author tells us why he wrote all these things down. He wrote all these things down so that people might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And by believing, they have, may have life through his name. Now today, the message is based upon that one verse that Jesus spoke uh, to Thomas. So let's go back uh, to that verse. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. <clears throat> Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus is saying in this verse, there's two kinds of faith. You guys see that? There are two kinds of faith. There is a faith based on sight. Seen me, that led to your faith. There is a faith based on sight. Thomas, you have that. Good for you. But blessed are people who have not seen. There's a faith that people have that is not based on sight. But it's based on other things. And yet they still believe. How are you guys doing? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a fog right now out there. So let me draw something that might help you with understanding these different kinds of things, because this is huge. I want to talk about a thing I'm going to call the belief scale. 
I got this idea from my uh, son, Daniel, who has a PhD in philosophy from the University of California at Santa Barbara, actually wrote his dissertation on miracles, which philosophers don't call miracles, they call it special divine action. He's taught in philosophy in different uh, colleges around the country. He's used this with his students. He used it with me, and I thought, heck, and now I'm going to use it with you and see if this helps you at all. So he starts over here like this and draws a scale like this. So this would be like 0%, and this is 100%. And then right about here, boom, 50%. The people of 0% belief on the belief scale have zero certainty, zero certainty that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They're absolutely sure he did not rise from the dead. Do you get follow that? People of 100%, those people are absolutely sure. There is no doubt their certainty is at 100%. And 50% are people that are like, yeah, they're sitting on the fence. And yeah, yeah. So on this side of 50%, you believe. And on this side, you don't believe. This story is about Thomas. He doesn't believe. And all of a sudden, he jumps all the way over here. This is Thomas. And Thomas sees. And he goes from non-belief to absolute certainty, boom. And his faith, Jesus says, is based on sight. But then Jesus says, yeah, good for you. <laughs> but blessed are people who don't ever make it that far. They don't have sight to see me. They're on this side. And those people, they believe, they make it there, not all the way, by Reason. Reasons. Reasons convince these people that yes, this is probably true, but reason will never get you all the way. It never gets you all the way. So what gets you the rest of the way? This, this far is faith. Faith is reason gone courageous? Faith is reason gone courageous. It gets you to a place where you're fully persuaded, but you've never seen. You don't have sight as your anchor. Paul refers to faith in Romans 4.21 as being fully persuaded. That God has the power to do what he said he's going to do. Reason gone courageous. Now, unless you can see, you'll never be absolutely sure. How are you guys doing with this? You'll never be absolutely sure. You will always have some... This word here. You always have some doubt. Never get all the way. There will always be some, some kind of doubt in your mind when you, let me push this, always be some kind of doubt. I run into believers all the time who feel guilty because they have doubts. 
And usually when they talk to me about their doubts, they feel bad about it. They feel like it's, it's, they're, 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 they're risking something by telling their pastor that they have doubts. They're, they're concerned about the fact they have doubts. I never say this out loud because people are, I'm trying to be pastoral, <laughs> but I'm thinking in my head, this is what I'm thinking. Welcome to the human race. So glad you're joined us. To <laughs> hey, I have doubts. Oh, Pastor Chris, you can't. Yes, I have doubts. There's a myth of certainty. Certainty is about Thomas's experience, sight, you see. But Jesus said, blessed are people who have never seen, and yet they have faith. So what I'm going to do today is I want to present some reasons to believe. So that the table tilts in favor of the resurrection rather than away from it. Are there some arguments that we could present that makes it more reasonable to believe than not to believe. If you were a betting person, would you bet that it's more reasonable to believe in the resurrection than not in the resurrection? But there is no argument. There's no argument that is a sledgehammer argument and that gets gets rid of all doubt. There's no argument that if I present this argument, all doubts are smashed doesn't exist because there is a faith that's not based on sight. And that faith, Jesus says, if you have that, wow, that's amazing. Blessed are you if you believe and you have not seen. But there will always be doubt. Does that make sense? So let's go through some of those reasons. What are some reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First argument for the resurrection would be something like this. Fact one, Jesus was a real historical person. Now, it's popular uh, in some circles to say, well, this is all a myth that Christians make up. They're afraid of death like everybody else, so they make up this whole thing uh, about Jesus, but he really never uh, existed. He's a mythical uh, figure like uh, an ancient person named Horus in the past. Uh, this is the kind of thing that is popular in like a movie uh, by Bill Mayer uh, called uh, Religulous. It's just this is just a myth. It's just uh, it's just all a myth. This is the kind of thing that's popular uh, in uh, supermarket tabloids, but it's not a popular argument with serious. Uh, historians, because serious historians know, now we have pretty good evidence that there was a person named Jesus who actually really lived. There was a Roman uh, governor uh, named Pliny uh, the Younger, and Pliny the Younger uh, lived in 112 AD. He he wrote uh, this. They declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery to commit no breach of trust and not to deny deposit when called upon to restore it. I, I'm all the more inclined to believe this since in search for the truth, I tortured two of their serving girls whom they call deaconesses. That's a cold, cruel line right there at the end, isn't it? 
Yeah, he's saying, I tend to believe this because, you know, I tortured a couple of them. And they kept to this idea that there was a Christ. Now, could those girls have been lying? Yeah, they could have been. Yeah. But if I was a betting person, I would bet they probably weren't lying. It's more reasonable to believe, yeah, that there probably was a person named Jesus. There are a lot of other historians I could go to in the ancient world who testify the same thing. All I'm just saying is this. Serious historians really don't debate this. There was a person who lived in history named Jesus. The second argument might be something like this. Jesus really died on a a Roman cross. Jesus really died on a Roman cross. He really really did. Uh, The New Testament obviously asserts this. But uh, Roman historians also say that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Pliny uh, the Younger had a friend named Tacitus. Tacitus wrote uh, the history of Rome. And uh, several years after the burning of Rome, uh, Tacitus actually uh, wrote this in around 115 AD. Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalties, referring here to the crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. So here's pretty good evidence that Jesus died on a cross from Tacitus, another Roman historian named Lucius of Samosoto, he writes this. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. All I'm saying is this. Uh, There's pretty good evidence outside of the Bible that there was a historical person named Jesus and he was crucified on a Roman cross. Third argument will go like this. Jesus Disciples were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and they passed what they saw down to others. When you read the New Testament, you'll see the importance of the fact that there were eyewitnesses and they made a big deal out of this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally bored. Appeared, appeared, appeared. This is very important. Because there were eyewitnesses, Jesus appeared to about 500 of them. If you don't believe this, go talk to the eyewitnesses. So as the early Christians uh, spread the news, they keep talking about the eyewitnesses. One person who did that was a person named Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote in 130 uh, AD, or that's, those are his dates. But Polycarp, this is a person who lived before him, also was not only instructed by the apostles, and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth, for he tarried on earth a very long time. 
And when a very old man, gloriously and most nobly suffering martyrdom, departed this life, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles. Here's the timeline. Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. Eyewitnesses saw him. Polycarp actually talked with those eyewitnesses. Irenaeus says, I I actually met Polycarp because he lived a really long time. Do you guys follow that? Shake your heads up and down. You see that? It's based on eyewitnesses. The question is, is it reasonable to believe the eyewitnesses' story? When I was growing up, I used to visit my grandma Connie, who lived in Vincennes, Indiana. And grandma Connie had a brother named uh, Uncle Dick. And sometimes we'd go over to Uncle Dick's house, and there was a picture of Uncle Dick in Uncle Dick's house of his grandfather. And he'd come over to me when I was a young boy, and he'd say, Chris, I remember I told you the story about Grandpa Garner. And I'd go, it doesn't matter. I'm going to hear the story again. So your Grandpa Garner, Chris, he was a blacksmith in Albany, Illinois. And one day, a fellow was riding through Albany, and his, his horse threw a shoe. And Grandpa Garner... He shod that fellow's horse. And when that fellow came to pay Grandpa Garner, Grandpa Garner, and the story always went the same way. So I'll tell you what Grandpa Garner looked up and up and up, and he saw the tallest man he'd ever seen in them parts. That was Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> That's Uncle Dick's story. So the question is, is it reasonable to believe that? Well, if you Google, you can look at the 1860 census of the area, and there was a man named Daniel Garner who lived in Albion, Illinois in the 1860s, and he was a blacksmith. And if you know anything about history, you know that Abraham Lincoln lived in Springfield. Well, Springfield's not very far from Albion. And if you know much about history, you know that one of Abraham Lincoln's very best friends is William Pickering. And where did William Pickering live? He lived in Albion, Illinois. And it's not unreasonable to believe that his horse might have thrown a shoe sometime. And the only blacksmith in town could have fixed it. If I was a betting person, I'd bet it might be true. And Irenaeus is saying, if I'm a betting person, I had an opportunity to talk to Polycarp. Polycarp talked to eyewitness who'd actually seen the risen Jesus. Some of you are going, oh, this is great, Pastor Chris. Yeah, but that's not enough evidence. Anything else? One more. One more argument, and it's this. The explosion of a new worldview was on the scene. What accounts... For the explosive growth of a brand new worldview. Rodney Stark uh, puts it like this. In 33 AD, more than 500 people uh, uh, saw the resurrected Christ. And by 350 AD, 33 million people were followers of that Christ. Christ. That's an explosion of a worldview. These are people who didn't actually see Christ. What would cause The explosion of this worldview. It's all based on a lie? Yeah, maybe. But it's probably more reasonable to believe 
since this was a brand new worldview and many of these people who were believers were tortured to death, that it was based on more than a lie, but actually based on a fact. Even though you actually can't see the risen Christ, where there is smoke, there's a fire. The other day I was driving uh, through town on the west side and I was looking at one of my bike path areas and there was this massive Massive smoke in the, in the air, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're burning up my bike path. And then I realized the city of Madison burns a lot of prairies this time of year. Now, I didn't actually see the fire, but was there a fire? The answer is, because when you see all of that, you go, even though I can't see it, there's probably a fire. Where did all these people get this idea? There's probably something true. If I was a betting person, it seems to, the evidence seems to tilt in more in favor of the resurrection than against it. Pastor Chris, I'm not convinced. All right? What are some rival arguments against this? Well, there's several. Let me just name a few. First rival argument is this. Jesus really didn't die. Really didn't die on a cross. This is based on the assumptions that the Romans weren't good at killing people. Hello. <laughs> so I think it's more reasonable to believe that the Roman soldiers who executed people were pretty good at their job. And they probably actually did kill him. Well, maybe it's a new group of soldiers and they didn't really like Well, okay, maybe, maybe. But if I was a betting person, I would bet that the Romans actually proved in history that they're really good at killing people and that there really was a dead Jesus. Second, the body was stolen. This is based on the assumption that uh, those disciples, they're clever people. Clever people. And they outfoxed and they outfooled uh, all the people, uh, the Roman people. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, all right. Clever guys. If they were so clever uh, in their world, why did they, in the story they made up, why, why did they have women plays such a prominent role in the narrative. Because you know, in their world, very patriarchal world, women's testimony didn't mean anything. It didn't even stand up in a court of law. Women were degraded. What? I'm going to try to fool my society. I'm going to put women as key witnesses of that. No, 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 no. I don't think that makes sense. If I was a betting person, I'd say, nah, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Third, the accounts that we have are all biased. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they're biased. Absolutely. But um, so is most of the social media. <laughs> so is most of history. So is most of journalism. And just because it's biased doesn't mean it's not true. I might be a Cubs fan. That doesn't mean that my account of the game is false. Sorry, Brewers fans. Fourth argument. You can't prove it scientifically. Yep, that's true. You can't. Neither can you prove most history scientifically. If by scientifically you mean that um, we have to uh, repeat uh, the experiment and test the hypothesis and then my peers have to look in and see uh, what's going on. 
yeah, you can't repeat history that way. So if everything has to be proved scientifically, what do you do with history? You don't believe in history? Here at Blackhawk Church, you know what? We are in favor of uh, science. I mean, um, uh, Blackhawk had this uh, mentality about being moving towards science uh, long before I came 27 years ago. But I, it was one of the things that attracted me to Blackhawk Church and uh, to Madison. When I was an undergraduate, I graduated from Indiana State University. My field was biology. I had a chemistry minor. Science has always been... Uh, important to me. We lean here at Blackhawk Church uh, towards uh, the sciences, and we try to promote organizations that promote uh, science. Uh, one time, I was speaking in pre-COVID world about the uh, this uh, myth between uh, there's this uh, fight between science and faith. That's uh, just a myth. And this uh, young woman walked up to me, and she identified herself as a student at the University of Minnesota, and and she said. Uh, Pastor Chris, I have a question for you. I said, sure, fire away. She said, how, how come there are not more scientists who are believers? I said, there's lots of scientists who are believers. She said, name one. Okay. Wow. Uh, Francis Collins. Who's he? Okay. Uh, have you heard of the Human Genome Project? Oh, yeah. Well, Francis Collins kind of led the effort for the Human Genome Project. And you should know that. And then President Obama appointed him to be the head of the National Institutes of Health. Have you ever heard of that? And then he did such a good job, President Trump kept him as the head of the National Institutes of Health. And now Biden is keeping that same position. When Obama hired Francis Collins uh, to be in charge of the NIH, Francis Collins had just formed an organization called uh, BioLogos, in full disclosure, I am on the advisory council of uh, BioLogos and uh, have met and uh, have a small relationship with Francis Collins. At Blackhawk Church, we want to promote the science. This is an organization that's fantastic, you guys. There's another organization I'll call your attention to called a Science uh, for the Church. It's a brand new organization. The people at Blackhawk are kind of in the, we're, we're helping other people launch uh, that kind of thing. Hey, you know uh, what's in the news today because of uh, science and all this kind of thing is the vaccine. And you know, Francis uh, has led in the NIH. He doesn't work for BioLogos anymore. He can't. He works for the government. Uh, but Francis has led uh, many people and uh, worked together with many scientists around the world to produce this vaccine. Really, you guys, it's amazing what's happening. And you know, Francis says it's good. I'm good with that. That's why I got a vaccine. It's not only the right thing to do, it's a loving thing to do. Now, some of you are on that side of the 50% thing and you're going, you know what, I am not convinced. And my word to you is this. Welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're uh, here. And uh, I understand from conversations with many people who are just on that side, that I could stand up here all day long and present one argument after another, and it barely, it barely moves you towards faith. And the reason is not because you're not impressed with the evidence. The reason is you know other Christians. And the Christians you know have dropped the ball. They have hurt you in some way, or in some way they have demonstrated that they're hypocrites. And it just, it might have been your parents, your grandparents, might have been a friend. 
and you're like, whatever, and you have moved away from God or you just don't want to talk about it because of the hypocrisy you've seen in the church. And you know what? I, I get that. I totally get it. Our staff gets that. I think I could do a talk on campus. And if you titled the talk uh, Evidence for the Resurrection, only a few people would show up, and most of those would be Christians. <laughs> but if I did a talk on campus entitled Why Are Christians Such Hypocrites? I think the room would be full. I think it would be full. So I understand your feelings. And all I'm saying to you is this. Take a step. Just take a step. Have a conversation. Maybe somebody on our pastoral staff. Have a conversation with someone about hypocrisy that you've seen and talk about that. Because I think if you look at the evidence, the evidence seems to tilt the table in favor of the resurrection rather than opposed to it. Now those of us who are on this side of the 50% line, let me say this to all of us. We should be able to demonstrate reasons why we have hope that we do. Peter writes this in 1 Peter. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and, what's that word? Yeah. We should have reasons, but as we present them, we should do it in a, a loving way. Because, you know, as my son would say, and he's a philosopher, the most powerful apologetic in the world is love. That's the most powerful apologetic. But we should be people who have greater trust, but greater love. That's where the game's played. And that is what Lynn is going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now for people who have heard uh, this talk, um, maybe either in this room or probably online, and maybe some friend has said, hey, I want you to hear this. And I, I pray, Father, for those folks who are struggling with uh, doubt. Or maybe they are struggling with the fact that they've run into so many Christians who don't seem loving at all and seem to be hypocrites. I pray, Father, that your spirit would work in their minds and their hearts in such a way that he would, he would convict them of of things that are in their own world. And he would move them, gently nudge them towards loving people who want to have a conversation. And Father, for those of us who, um, who still have doubts because we've not seen, we pray, Father, you would help us to be bold in our faith. And that as we are bold in our faith, we would be witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name for the sake of his reputation. All God's people said, amen. amen.